0: Right, the split sermon will be brought to us today by one of my very favorites, Art Williams. Sifting through the ashes of history with an eye on the future. Art. Then said, if we fail to learn the lessons of history, you were bound to repeat the same mistakes. But to benefit from these generalizations, we need to know the details surrounding the individual historic event that shaped and molds us. I'm going to look at one event in church history that split and divided the people of God for the purpose of reviewing it and to learn from it and so that we avoid the same mistake in the future. But I first want to review some foundational scriptural principles that govern what we do and how we do them. The first foundational point that I want to make is following Jesus. Jesus made one singular statement that contains the advice for the future development of us individually and collectively as the church for all time. And that statement is my sheep know my voice. It's found in John 10 28. I'm not going to turn there, you all know it well. Unity in the church is achieved by knowing the voice of Jesus. The truth of God is understood through knowing the voice of Jesus. And to know the voice of Jesus, one must study and understand what he said. We must know what he said, understand what he meant, and how he intended it to be used, unvarnished by man. The result is, if it's done correctly, is that is to be more perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 12.2. The second foundational point is pleasing God. In Romans 8.8, it says, and I'm going to be using the NIV today. I usually always use the King James, but I'm in the NIV today. Uh, You'll see why a little later. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We all fall into the realm of the flesh from time to time. We do things, we open our mouth, we behave incorrectly, whatever. But in Hebrews eleven six, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if we believe that he exists and that he rewards us who earnestly seek him, two qualifications, earnestly seeking him, and that he rewards us, if we don't believe that he will reward us, he's not going to reward us. Point three on the foundational points. Gifts. In Ephesians 4:8, and uh, then I'm going to go on to 11 through 12. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives, and he gave gifts to his people. Continuing on in verse 11, so Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, and continuing on, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Paul continues on, and in the very last verse, let's go before the very last verse to 27, I'm not sure I give you that, Brian. let's go to verse, um, 1 Corinthians 12:27. if you have that, Brian? You got that. Okay, To equip these people from I'm mixed up here. All right, we'll continue on to 28 then. continue to 28, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondary prophets, thirdly teachers, after miracles, then gifts, healings, helps, governments, and diversities of tongues, and can we continue on to the end of the verse, Go to 29, you don't have 29, okay, I'll have to turn to it, but basically what he says, Well, I turn to that, All are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And he goes on to say, love is the more excellent way. Love supersedes these gifts. These gifts have to be implemented in love, and if they're not, they are deficient. The fourth foundational point is sincerity. In 1 Peter 1.22, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. You know, this can't be fake. It must be real. Politicians go about, and they smile, and they gladhand, They're holding babies because they want to present a certain image. But it's not from the heart. When I was a young person, I attended church for the very first time. And the man speaking said, we're going to have a number of new people attending over the upcoming weeks. Please be friendly and outgoing and make them feel welcome. Really? Being the cynical young person I was at the time, I said to myself, so they really aren't friendly and outgoing, are they? He has to tell them to act that way. In Proverbs 26, 28, it says, a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruins. We aren't here to play church as we played house when we were little children. It's real. The next foundational point are the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You know, it may be necessary in the life of a new Christian, a in Christ, to exercise self-control, mentally restraining himself from using carnal methods, and to exhibit the fruits of the Holy Spirit by conscious mental thought. Because often the carnal manners are so ingrained in our heart, the ways of the world, over years are difficult for that to change. But over time, with Christian growth, the unfeigned love and the fruit of the spirit are made manifest sincerely from a purified heart. First Peter 1:22. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I want to go now to the historic event. And I'm not doing this to point the finger or to be critical. I'm doing it because there's so much to learn from this one singular event that happened, which, in the initial incident, it was 13 simple words that probably took all the 15 seconds to say. Some of you have never heard of this incident. Other of you not only have heard of it, you lived through it. We kind of turn the clock back to 1978 Feast of Tabernacles. In the preceding months, a popular television evangelist of the church, who happened to be the Pastor General's son, departed and started his own church. Fearing that Many of the congregation would leave and follow this evangelist. And and having a large negative impact on tithes and offerings, the pastor general made the following statement. God works through one man at a time from the top down, and I'm that man. He subsequently claimed to be infallible. He demanded an oath of loyalty. And he went about disfellowshipping people for disagreeing with him or criticizing the only the organization. In Romans twelve two it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Yeah. That's why the veil was ripped before the Holy of Holies in Matthew 27, 51, after Jesus died. And in the Old Testament, it's explained in Exodus 26, 31 through 33. This gives us personally direct access to God. So now let's go back, and I want to look at that statement, God works through one man from the top down. God works through one man at a time. <clears throat> I want to look at first. First of all, David, in his episode with Bathsheba, was confronted by a prophet sent by God, a man. Even though David was king, David did, God did not work just through David. He worked through a prophet. In Bollinger's companion Bible in the Old Testament, we can look and we can see the chronology of the overlapping of the major and minor prophets. Those that were sent to Judah and those were sent to Israel, and how they lived concurrently at the same time. Some of them never talking to one another, never knowing each other. Others, we have proof like Daniel and Jeremiah, did communicate with each other. The history of Paul. The 12 apostles were at Jerusalem while Paul was being taught by Christ in Arabia. And you can find the history of Paul's early days in Galatians, the first chapter and the second chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul preached for three years before going to Jerusalem. Then when he went to Jerusalem, he saw only Peter and James, the Lord's brother. He stayed with them for 15 days. He then went back and continued his evangelistic work for another 14 years before he ever came to Jerusalem again. And he explains how they decided when he was the second time after the 14 years. He went down there and they talked about him going, being the apostle to the Gentiles and the apostles to the Jews in Jerusalem, the 12 original apostles. <clears throat> I want to look at the next statement from the top down. In Mark 9, 38 through 40, when the disciples saw a man that was not part of their group, not with Jesus, they forbid him to preach Jesus or to heal. And Jesus stopped them and said, he that is not against us is for us. So here's a man that's not even with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, it's okay. Let him go. In Acts 1 through 5, I'm sorry, Acts 6, 1 through 5, it's an interesting little passage, because if you go on the internet and you do a search on the duties of deacons, it'll reference you to these scriptures. Starting in verse 1. And in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were, not, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. It's a little bit different from your King James. How you get that it's a distribution of food issue is by looking up the words in Strong's. You find out the table means a place where you eat. Okay. If we continue, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. The word tables, if you look at them as strong, means a place where you put food. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip. Now, at that point, I'll stop with that section because we know that Stephen and Philip were ordained. And I want to take a closer look at Stephen first in Acts 6, verse 8. Stephen being ordained a deacon. and In verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of grace, God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people, continuing in 9, if you have that. Basically, we'll find out that doing his great wonders and signs, he was preaching. There arose certain in the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Crianians and Alexandrians, and then of Cilicia and Asia, and disputing with Stephen. So Stephen is out there, and he's preaching. And if we go on to Acts 8, 1 through 8, we find that Philip was out there doing signs and was healing. And in verse 12, we find he baptized. And continuing in 14, while the, it says, while the apostles were in Jerusalem, and they heard that Samaria had received the word. Now, this is the deacon Philip, not the apostle Philip. The apostles were in Jerusalem. And what was Philip doing? He was baptizing and he was preaching. So apparently, the apostles did not send him on this journey because they said, it says they heard of the message. Philip did this on his own. If the apostles ruled and controlled where and when the preaching was done, then Philip violated the chain of command. But let's continue because there's more in Acts 8:26, where we find out God sent his angels to direct Philip to the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza." So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was on his way home. To speed things up, I'm going to skip over some scriptures but I'll reference them to you. You can continue on to read the story in the scriptures 32, 35 through 38. Um, what happens in there is the eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. Philip comes up to him, starts preaching Christ. And in the end, the eunuch asks, What forbids me from being baptized? And Philip tells him, "If you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God," what is happening in Acts six is not a job description for deacons and separating the responsibilities that the world does on an organizational chart. And there's nothing wrong with organizational charts, but it's an example of offloading duties to prevent overload of work, just as Jethro advised Moses in Exodus eighteen, Exodus eighteen thirteen through twenty one. The deacons' jobs are more than just serving food, carrying out food. They have more descriptions on them. More job functions than just that. It's not their sole responsibility. So let's move on to the claim of infallibility. And In this statement, we don't even have to go to any scriptures about this because it's very easy to disprove that statement that I'm infallible, all you have to do is look at the history of the person, what they're doing. In this case, the church had changed the day of Pentecost from Monday to Sunday. So at that point, he was still fallible. So the question is, at what point did you come infallible? Well, from the evidence in the scriptures, we can say that his first statement. God works through one man, was an error. So the very day that he made that statement, he was not infallible. And the part of a lo- loyalty oath, Matthew five thirty four says, swear not at all. And in Strong's numbers, it's thir- the word swear is 3660, meaning oath. And on this disfell- 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 shipping people, John sixteen two makes a statement. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think he does God a service. <laughs> out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Luke six forty five. Or I said that backwards, I think, a man speaks out of the abundance of the heart. Luke six forty five. And so with words spoken, we make manifest to all that hear the condition of our heart. Now, that can be a knee-jerk reaction. It can be a conditioned response. I'm good at that one. Or it could be a deep-seated pathological condition. The emotions of fear and anger can abundantly fill the heart very easily. And if not, checked and eliminated. Eliminated, not suppressed. You see, if you suppress it, it's still there. You're just holding it back and controlling it. And it's just a matter of time before your control will break down. Fear and anger impede the unfeigned love of God, the unfeigned love that God wants us to possess from a pure heart. What do you think the reactions were to that statement? Some of you know because you lived them; you were there firsthand. But for you, those that perhaps weren't there, what do you think the reaction was and what do you think the correct reaction should have been if you had been? Do nothing. That was one reaction. You know, people feel comfortable when they let others assume all of the responsibility. I'm real warm and comfortable then. I don't have anything to do. Or the second reaction is pray about it and hope it will change. This happened too. You know, sometimes prayer is kind of like duck and cover, you know. I'll pray about it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. The third one was what probably a, a whole bunch of people did. Some of you in here did it. You leave the church. This was done in two different ways. You turn your back on God and go back to your own ways. And I know a man that I have a lot of respect for who did that, he was in the ministry. And if any any man was a a strong, powerful leader, he was, and he knew the scriptures. Well, totally turned his back on God. If he doesn't change, he's going to lose his salvation. The second way of leaving the church was to leave that church and attend another, or start your own. Both of those were done. Another reaction was to go to him and get clarification and try to change his opinion. This happened, and I know personally of one evangelist that did. There's probably more, um, but I'm not that close to no details on that conversation, so I don't want to repeat them. But this man revealed many, many, many years after the death of the people that were involved in this incident. He, asked them, he, he revealed that he asked the man if he now believed in the supremacy of Peter. That's the Catholic doctrine that says Peter was the first pope, and Peter was the supreme apostle. To which the man replied, no. No? Then you lied to the congregation. Later, it was reported that he reversed himself on that and said the Catholics have it right. So, so much for infallibility again. But his justification was, I have to do something. They're trying to steal the church. They're all going to run after my son, and there won't be anybody here. Because he had a big organization. He had huge broadcast costs, television, radio. It's a big organization. So he felt threatened. But they're trying to steal the church. Really? Steal the church? How can you have something stolen from you when you don't own it? You see, this man didn't hang on that stake. He didn't purchase the church with his shed blood. Jesus did. Other men in that same structure have made similar statements. One of them was, I started this church. This is my church. Another one is, Dad ruined the family business. The church, a family business. Would you want to go to that church? How do you think he runs that church? From the directions of Jesus or as a family business? You young men, men, someday you're going to be pillars in this Tulsa Church of God. This is important to remember. Remember it 20 years from now. Because it seems like it's a common error that comes along later in life. We we learn the basics of what Jesus says when we're young. And somehow we get overtaken. We get there's a principle of ownership. I wasn't going to go into this, but I'm gonna make time. There's a principle of ownership. It's it's a leadership principle. It's big in the corporation. Take ownership of your job. Get your employees to take ownership of that position because then they're dedicated and they're sincere they will do a better job. They're more concerned about it. There's a problem with that, though. Jesus says, do your job as if you're working for him. When you get into the ownership part, the job, you become the job. The job becomes your identity. I had people in my plant, when we would shut down for vacation on the Fourth of July, they would say, I don't have anything else to do. Can I work? And they'd be union guys and, or, or gals and we would have them come in and they'd paint the walls, clean equipment. They, were, they owned the job but the job became their identity and they couldn't let go. There are many origins probably in the attitudes behind the scenes as to why this man made his statements, and his subsequent man, power, control, pride, age deterioration. But the common failure mechanism is failure to continue to hear and recognize the voice of Jesus. Jesus owns the church. Jesus purchased it with his shed blood. No one else hung on the stake. Luke writes, in Acts 20:28 20, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers these shepherds of the church of God which he b- bought with his own blood It's interesting because here it's kind of like the Old Testament with Aaron Aaron would go in and he would offer sacrifices for himself first, and then he would offer sacrifices for the people. Here Luke writes, because he's speaking to the shepherds, keep watch over yourselves first, and then the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he has some very strong words back in Jeremiah. And I don't know where this man fits into the situation. It says in Jeremiah 23:1, woe to be the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. I don't know where he fits into that. Every man is accountable to himself. Those that left the church turned their back on God. But yet he was instrumental in motivating some of that. Coming to the fullness of Christ, a purified heart is not accomplished by authoritarian orders and commands to the whims of men, but rather voluntarily learning, understanding, voluntarily being led by the Holy Spirit, and submitting to the truth of God. Men are instrumental in accomplishing this task when they're properly focused. Paul wrote to Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's the evaluation point, as he followed Christ. In Hebrews 13, 17, and I want to compare compare King James with the NIV here. And Brian can put the King James up there first. We'll read the King James. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give account that they may do it with joy and not grief, for that is unprofitable for you. In other words, you know, help them out with the task Don't, you know, don't cause them a lot of grief. They're trying to do what's right for you. But at the same time, we have to understand the word obey, rule, and Submit. The word obey is Strong's number 3982, which means persuade. Now you're going to see why I'm going to go to the NIV here in a minute. If I put the word persuade in in for obey, then I get persuade them that have the rule over you. But that's not the meaning here. It could be be persuaded by them that have the rule over you. Now let's go to the word rule. Strong's number 22:33, which is to lead or go before." And the word "submit is strongs 52:26: Resist no longer to yield." And I think in this case, the NIV does a better job of actually communicating what the intent is here. In the NIV, Hebrews 13:17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you." I think that makes it a little more clear than the the words of rule and obey, have confidence and willingly yield. And again, there is the qualification there, again, that they are watching for your souls. The, we're, I think last week, we referenced Matthew 20:25, 20, 25. Where it says, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Again, in the King James, If you go to the strongest numbers for exercise dominion over, it's 2634, to bring under one's own power. The statement that I wrote earlier sounds very familiar to what he was doing, trying to bring under one's own power. The second phrase, exercise authority upon, Strong's number 2715, is wield power, wielding power. Demanding an oath of loyalty. It's wielding power. So he made his infamous, infamous statement. And in doing so, he did it because he didn't want people running after his son, the popular evangelist who was leaving the church. And he didn't want everybody in the congregation running after his son. But in doing so, in his statement, he split the church. He cast people out. He drove people away. He reduced the membership. And he did exactly what he was trying to avoid. Interesting. Do you think any of this could have happened if he could have maintained a proper focus and could have been closer to God? Do you think if he would have had in his heart, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, where Paul writes, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God, who makes things grow. God didn't help him build up that organization just to have it crumble because of one little event like this. He needed to have his faith and his confidence in God that things would work out. The chief shepherd is able to guide and direct. Can an overseer interfere? Can a pastor general interfere with the relationship between the sheep and the chief shepherd? For you young men, these are some of the considerations, some of the concerns that require discernment. Wisdom and guidance from Jesus and God the Father. Our church today is not the church of 40 years ago. And 40 years from today, it's not going to be the same church that it is today. If we do things right, We'll, have, we'll be much closer to the fullness of Christ than what we were. We have grown. We have suffered growing pains. But through it all, we are being formed into what the great potter wants us to be. The church 40 years from now will be different one than the one here before us today. But reliant upon Jesus, one must be reliant upon the voice of Jesus. We must recognize it it will be incumbent upon you young men who will be pillars and those in the congregation in that day to see that it remains so. We're admonished to prove all things and hold fast that which is good, not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then we individually will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, apart from any man telling us what God's will is for us. Where there is no vision, the people perish. For you young people, the torchbearers of the future, adhere to that vision, the vision of the kingdom of God, and set the path to get everyone there. Give careful thoughts to your paths of your feet, and be steadfast in all your ways. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. This entire book, the Bible, it's about relationships. A relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. It tells us the instructions on how to conduct these relationships. The two overriding principles in this relationship, knowing the voice of Jesus and doing everything in love. Until we reach unity in the faith, and Paul Wright says that because obviously even at Paul's time, There was disunity in the faith. Some of that's caused simply by what we understand or don't understand. Infants in Christ may not understand something that a mature Christian would understand. Fair? When you're raising a three-year-old, parenting, you don't use the same parenting skills on your 18-year-old or 17-year-old. You're going to have a pretty negative response. We will be no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love in unity as each part does its work listening to the voice of Jesus.